welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summary. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Matteo Baluki, and he is a serial entrepreneur with 22 years of experience launching and growing consumer platforms. Healthily is his latest venture, and that was the first AI platform to help consumers find health information and advice that they need to make better choices completely free of charge. We've got here, Healthily is Google for health. What a bold claim that is, Matteo. And I look forward to getting into this with you. Uh, But first of all, how are you? How are you doing? I'm great, thanks, James. It's great to be here. Good. I'm looking forward to our chat. Excellent. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Matteo? It sounds Italian. Are you are you in Italy? I'm I'm Italian. I'm in Rome. I'm in Rome at the moment. Lovely. Yeah. Old Lovely. one of the oldest towns in the world. Lovely. Right. Let's talk about some health tech, shall we? Um you've a serial digital entrepreneur, 22 years of experience launching and growing platforms. So you must have a fair few companies behind you. You must have a fair few interesting stories to tell. Um, and latterly, obviously, you've moved into healthcare. Have you always been in healthcare? Talk to me about your entire. Tell me your entire story, Matteo. Where does where does this all start? So it's actually twenty seven years, not twenty two. <laughs> oh wow! Because oh, my wow. first startup was in 1995. So brief history of my life. So I'm Italian, born in Italy. Um, didn't really know what to do with my life as a young man, but I had a passion for physics. So I went to study physics in Italy, got a, a doctoral degree in theoretical physics, and then still not knowing what to do with my life and realizing that I would never win a Nobel Prize, I decided to go to England when I was uh, 23. And I went to Imperial College and I started a PhD in computing. And that was uh, 93, 94. That's when the World Wide Web was launched. And being there was like being in the delivery room of the, of the internet. And I got very excited. You know, when I saw the first browser, I thought, wow, this is really going to change a lot of things. And so with a friend, uh, another PhD student there, we, we decided to launch a startup. We said, let's create a company. And I always had a bit of an entrepreneurial vocation since uh, being a teenager and so with this friend we started brainstorming and you know was there was nothing you know the internet was like completely it was like the metaverse today it was completely empty Mm -hmm. and so without knowing anything about pretty much anything (laughs) we decided to focus on a market that looked pretty big and lucrative which was real estate so we said well you know with the internet people are going to start looking for properties online and at the time, the only way you could look for properties was buying the Sunday Times. And the back of the Sunday Times, there were, you know, 20 pages of classifieds. Yeah, and yeah. It was very, very inefficient. So in 1995, we launched the first internet website, sort of internet property website, kind of a Zoopla kind of thing. And um, I was going to say, did right, did right move buy you out? No, they didn't. And uh Briefly, you know, what we did back then, you know, essentially we created, you know, a, a database with properties and uh, hmm. we could, you know, to allow people to search based on, you know, location and the usual thing you can do today. The problem was that when I went around to see estate agents, they didn't know what the internet was. <laughs> so the sale was very <laughs> difficult because I had to walk in. 
I was going with this laptop and with like a, with the first mobile phones connected to the laptop, and I was showing them the internet. We're like, what is this thing? You know, it was like showing the metaverse <laughs> to my father today. Probably they got a very similar reaction. And uh, but we we kind of we we got in a good place. Uh, we ran it for a couple of years. We signed up all the largest agents in London, and then I approached. Um, News International, because they own the Sunday Times, and uh, basically said, you know, we've got this platform, we've got some of the top agents on it. Why don't we do a, a JV where you can start taking some of your classifieds onto this platform and you can use your sales channel to, to basically get all the agents on board? So they liked the idea, so we started working on the JV, and I spent six months at uh, in Wapping in the fortress of News International preparing mm-hmm. the deal. And then at the last minute, the deal fell through because we were supposed to bring in three estate agents as uh, kind of founding shareholders. And one of them pulled out at the last minute. They had a change of art. So the whole thing collapsed, you know, with the contracts oh, in my man. hands. It would have been my first exit. Oh. I was like, oh, dear. So first lesson there was, um, was a painful lesson was that you have to have control of the deal. So you have, if you're trying to do a you know, a sale of the company or something pretty strategic. You have to have full control of the deal. And we didn't have control because we didn't really know what was going on within the state agents. And I was very young mm. and inexperienced. So I, kind of, I let the whole thing collapse. Then from there, I did a lot of stuff, which I think, you know, would take a lot longer than an hour to go through. But essentially, <laughs> I you probably split my career in, in sort of two streams. One was other startups, and uh, which I did over the years, always with the focus on consumer platforms. And what I always tried to do in my startup was to try to use digital technology to do something that you couldn't do before, basically really trying to use the strength and the novelty of digital to introduce new ways of doing things that were impossible before the internet. So, for example, I created a platform to allow people to find um, their next read, you know, what should I read next? And so I was mm-hmm. working with the large publishers like Random House, HarperCollins, and we created a social discovery platform. They also used AI to help people pick the next book because, you know, if you look at the data, people read 300 books on average in their lives. And, you know, and, and these books can have a deep impact on your personal development. So, you know, you should try to read the best books. And so, and so we did that and it was really interesting. We ended up selling it, uh, you know, half of it to Sainsbury and the other half to a big uh, publisher in Italy. And the other stream was to do, to, to do a couple of stints in corporate life. So one was in 1999. I worked for a company called Dean's which was one of the dot-com darlings that had raised $100 million. Imagine back then in 1999, $100 million, like a billion today. <laughs> and the company was, uh, was not set up by me, but I joined as a global head of all the digital stuff. And it was essentially a loyalty scheme online, sort of a kind of mm-hmm. air miles for the web, where you could earn points by doing things online, and then you could redeem the points for you know products and services and so on. Uh, that collapsed when the bubble burst in 2000, 2001, major disaster. <laughs> a mm. lot of people lost a lot of money there. 
but it was interesting. The years of the bubble were incredible. You know, there was so much money going around and people were just spending it as if there was no tomorrow. You know, I, I was traveling. I have to open 10 offices around the world in one year and set up the web teams from San Francisco to Sydney. And everything was first-class flights, five-star hotels, you know, unlimited wow. expenses to do whatever you wanted. It was just insane. Um, and the other corporate thing, I went to run uh, the um, Express newspapers, Channel 5, and the magazines of Northern Shell uh, with uh, Richard Desmond, the British billionaire, <laughs> which was uh, fun. So an interesting experience there. Those are the only two corporate jobs I had. And then the rest has always been startups. And uh, and then in kind of fast forward into 2015, I was having dinner with this Norwegian uh, friend of mine. And then we were talking about areas of consumer that had not really been transformed by digital. And obviously healthcare came up. Because, you know, the internet at that point was 20 years old and pretty much every other consumer sector had been transformed by digital and by healthcare had. And, you know, as a consumer, as a, you know, as a user, consumer, patient, call it whatever you want, you know, everything was exactly the same as, as it was in before the internet. And that kind of got my physicist brain going and, you know, problem, find the solution. So I started thinking about the opportunity of doing something really transformational and innovative in, you know, to help people in their healthcare journeys. And so the, the very simple analysis and is that today what people do is, you know, we all have questions about our health, you know, we're, and we don't have the answers because we're not medically trained, right? So it's, it's actually one of the areas of knowledge where there is the biggest asymmetry between consumers and and professional right and and in fact it's the longest degree and is the hardest degree medicine so it's not surprising that whenever you have a question or a problem you have no idea where to turn so what happens is that seven uh, percent of the entire uh, searches on google are health related so that's a roughly mm-hmm. one billion searches per day on google for health questions and problems and symptoms and so on and the problem is that Google, which is obviously amazing and has changed the world, it cannot work for healthcare because it's the only time when you approach a search engine where you actually have no idea what you need. You know, if you think of Google as an option optionality engine, you know, I want to go on holiday into Corfu, you know, what are the best hotels or, you know. Google is great for that. But if you, if you don't know where you're starting from because you don't have intent, your intent is not clear. You know, I have a headache and fever. I don't have intent. I'm just, I don't know. And Google just gives you a, a long list of websites that are ranked based on how popular they are for those keywords. But those websites or those pages may have nothing to do with your question or your problem. And so what happens, people go to Google because every journey starts there on the internet pretty much for anything. Google vomits out a list of websites and the website that you tend to find on google for health are, are very old websites they're websites that have been out there for you know 10 15 20 years like webmd the nhs healthline and they get at the top because of their you know how senior they are you know from a google point of view because they have a lot of content that has been created over the years 
and they have a very high rank because they've been out for a long time. They have a lot of link backs. Hmm. But that doesn't mean that those pages are in any shape or form useful to you because, you know, if you try to run a search on Google for some basic symptoms and then you click on the links, you find that those websites, you know, the pages are not necessarily relevant at all. And the other problem with those websites is that they never invested in personalization. So their focus is on content, you know, essentially that publisher, traditional publisher model. The more content you have, the more traffic you get, cookie harvesting, show ads, end of story. Highly profitable business, but essentially they're media channels. They're kind of cosmopolitan for health, you know, they're magazines, they're not really... And so if you go to these websites with your questions and with your symptoms, again, there's no guidance. And you end up reading whatever you want to read. And essentially, you kind of make up your own mind on what might be the problem. And generally, because we are worried and you don't know much about health, you end up you know, convincing yourself that your headache is probably brain cancer. And so we heard, you know, you probably all heard lots of stories of people going to the doctor saying, oh, doctor, doctor, I looked this up on Google. I think I have, you know, this and that. And the doctors obviously get really annoyed and frustrated because the patient that comes with a preconception, which is wrong, is obviously, you know, they have to do all the work to undo the preconception. So basically, that was the, the area that I started looking at, you know, which is if there's a billion people out there every day looking for this information, how can you actually give them something that is relevant, personalized, safe, and kind of medically validated. And that's how the idea was born for Healthfully. I love it. It's an amazing story, Atayana. I think the, it's, well, it starts, doesn't it, all the way back at what is a really interesting time to do a PhD and just educating yourself in computer science. The fact that you've done a theoretical physics degree as well, you know, just adds even more context to that. And you then off the back of those two degrees, then seeing the dot-com boom. I think that must have been one of the most fascinating periods to be part of in recent history in technology, because really the volume of kind of entrepreneurship that was enabled with, as you say, this bubble of all this money, all of this optimism. You were looking at this, seeing the first browser, you said, you know, the first throws of the internet. And for anybody like yourself that's really entrepreneurial, that must have just been like kid in a candy store type stuff, especially with your background uh, with an education absolutely. in this stuff. Like it's it's crazy. My, my question though is, you mentioned the metaverse a couple of times. You mentioned, you know, that Web3 kind of stuff. Do you do you see parallels right now with what's happening with the metaverse and the dot com boom? Because I think my question really here is I know what a hype curve is, and I've seen this in a few things, AI and healthcare being one of them, and a few other bits. You see the hype and the maturation and, and then the practical application. You see all these different things associated with that hype curve. The metaverse and Web3 in general is interesting to me, but I've not been grasped by it. I've not been blown away. I've not been taken away by it. I've not, I've not felt that kind of, and perhaps it's my grounding in healthcare, I don't know, but I've I've just not felt so swept away as some people have been. You know, you look at 
people in our sector like Keith Grimes or other people that are particularly involved in VR and and obviously that's closer to the metaverse than anything else and um, or, or what has been the precursor to it, I guess. But are you drawing parallels at the moment between the metaverse and what happened in that dot-com boom in any way, shape or form? Well, yes, and because I didn't mention that the PhD I was doing in Imperial in 93 was in virtual reality. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> of all things. <laughs> so we had a bit of a metaverse moment back in 95 and uh, 94, 95. There is a parallel, but it's more to my feeling, having seen you know, what I've seen back then, is that the parallel is more with the bubble of 1999 than okay. compared to the internet. But, you know, because, as you said, there is this kind of hype curve that you always see over and over again you know, in every new interesting ideas. So I personally think that the metaverse is going through, you know, the kind of the hype curve, you know, it's going up on the hype curve and it's, I think it's about to reach the, the peak and then it's going to go down in the valley of, you know, the, the disillusion. And the problem with the metaverse, which I saw back when I was doing VR in, you know, in 95, is that unlike the internet, the access to the metaverse is difficult. You know, the beauty of the internet was that the access to the internet was really simple. You know, the browser was your window onto the world. Now, you know, to do the metaverse, you need uh, headsets or AR devices. And, you know, they have obviously come, you know, a long way from 1995. I remember testing the first headsets back in 1995. You can imagine, you know, the pixelations and you could see the polygons in the screen. And now, you know, I have, I have two Oculus Quest 2, but it's cumbersome. It's uh, natural. You know, if you stay more than like 45 minutes inside, you start feeling a bit dizzy and, and, and in the beginning, the applications are kind of, you know, games are great, but, if you go beyond games, it's like, you know, you really struggle to see how this is going to really become a mainstream thing. So the, the the Zuckerberg vision of people working in the metaverse, I am not so sure that is going to be so pervasive. And, and Web3 is different. You know, Web3 is, you know, having a completely distributed uh, internet mm. system. That's different. because But that's more in the background. You know, you don't see that by Web3 is how things are working behind the scenes. And that's really interesting. And it's definitely the way the market is going to go. But not not so sure about the metaverse. You know, I think uh, the, the, the challenge now is going to be in the next couple of years if they can break it out of games. Because gaming is the only thing that is working right now. As it was in 95, funnily enough, you know, there were only two areas that worked back then. Mm-hmm. It was gaming and training. You know, you could use VR to train firefighters, you know, to simulate, uh, you know, going into a building with lots of smoke or a mechanic having to intervene on a very complex engine with augmented reality. All of that was already, you know, talked about in 95. But, you know, can you use this in medicine? Can you use this in office collaboration? Do you really want to go in a meeting with a headset, with an avatar? I don't know, you know. <laughs> I don't really know. Yeah. I'm not yeah, sure. I, I'm not investing in the that. metaverse. Personally, personally, I'm not putting money in the metaverse. No. Sorry. Interesting. But Interesting. it was a great time back then. It was really, really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Now that does interest me because you would, I would describe you as 
informed because you're an entrepreneur, you're in health tech, you have got an education in virtual reality that was almost 30 years ago. Uh, so thir- 30 years in the making of this opinion. And well, there you have it. You heard it here first. Matteo Baluki is not investing in the metaverse for healthcare. Time is uh, always the judge. Time will be the judge. Uh... Nice. Let's talk about healthily, shall we? Um, which I believe previously was called your MD. Is that right? So you want to know the story about why we changed the name, probably? <laughs> yeah, talk to me. Talk, yeah, talk to me about yes. that because I, I, I know it and remember it as your MD. Um, yeah, talk to me about that. So when we launched it in 2015, the idea was to create a personalized health assistant, basically a personal health assistant. Uh, and in fact, the first version was mobile only; it was an app. And so the idea was to try to put into an app a system that could guide you and inform you in a personalized way on your next best steps, basically. You know, I've got, you know, I've got this billion people going to Google every day. They're confused. They're worried. What do they need? Well, they need to know what to do and they want to know what they need to know. It's very simple user needs, you know, very clear. What do I need to do? What do I need to know? And that's why you go to Google and you type in whatever you type. And nobody's giving you those answers. I mean, you can get those answers, but you need to go and say healthcare professional because today only healthcare professional will give you those answers. And so the idea was to create this personal health assistant and your MD was actually short for your mobile doctor. So the mm-hmm. MD stood for mobile doctor or MD in America is a medical doctor. A medical and doctor. the domain was from Moldavia. In Moldavia, the domain is MD. So you could get your anything.md. So we registered oh, nice. your .md and it was a bit of, you know, YouTube, you here, you there, you know. Mm. And so we thought that was a cool name. What happened? So then we launched the app in, we launched the first version of the app, the Web Summit in Dublin, when it used to be in Dublin, in 2015, before the organizer fell out with the Irish government and moved to Lisbon, we launched the app and, you know, and we had the first version, the first ever AI chatbot. Because when I set up the company, we started working on it at the beginning of, sort of end of 2014, beginning of 2015, the idea was, okay, if I have these questions and I need these answers, what's the best interface to do that? And clearly, to be able to be helpful, a platform needs to get more information from you. Because if you say you have a headache and fever, okay, but I need more information. I need to know your gender, your age, if you have a symptom. And so I need to ask you questions. Now, how do you ask questions on, online? Well, you have two options. You have a form on a website or use chat. And in 2015, you know, chat, pretty good, because everybody was on WhatsApp. And so it was an easy user interface because people were familiar with it. And, and so we, we created this chatbot. We looked like WhatsApp. So you had the feeling you were talking to a, a, you know, a virtual healthcare professional or virtual doctor. And then at the end of this dialogue, the AI could propose some next steps and a recommendation. So we never really looked at doing diagnosis because we recognized quite early on that the diagnosis is a different thing. 
is actually, if you think about it, the diagnosis is something that you can only do posthumously. Because even when you go to see the GP, the GP has an idea and it says, I think you got this. Mm. And then you can only work out if it was correct if you get well. <laughs> Right. Absolutely. So, you know, even the doctor doesn't really diagnose you. They have an hypothesis of what it could be the problem and they recommend a strategy. So it's not that it's a strategy. And then if it works out, then the strategy turns out to be correct. But if it's not, then the diagnosis was wrong and you need to do something else. So it's so interesting the whole idea of diagnosis is completely misunderstood, I think, by most people. So we focused on a recommendation. Basically, the problem that we were trying to solve, as I said before, was not to tell you what's wrong with you, which is one problem, but to tell you what you need to do, which is actually the expensive question because mm -hmm. the costly thing for you as a patient, user, consumer is to decide to go to see the doctor because you need to take time off work. You need to get there. You know, Now you can do telemedicine, but still there is a cost in the action of seeing a doctor that costs somebody some money, could cost the NHS, could cost you, could cost insurance. But the, the cost is the decision, you know, is the act of seeing the doctor. The diagnosis happens later anyway, it's a different thing. And there is a cost with that, but that's the different problem that you know, we are not trying to solve. We're trying to solve the Google problem, which is you know, what you need to do. So we did that in the app, but then we realized that because we were not really diagnosing it, we're not trying to replace the doctor, but we're essentially just trying to replace Google, really, rather than the doctor. We, we didn't like the MD part of the name because it could be perceived that we were trying to be a virtual doctor. And so we, we worked with, uh, with, with a guy, a friend of mine who was an expert in, uh, in, uh, in branding, a guy called Andy, Andy Bellas, who's you know, got 25 years in, in branding as a genius. And we came up with Healthily because we wanted a single world word like Spotify, Netflix, you know, Google. So Healthily. And Healthily we liked because obviously you immediately understand it's about health and it's about helping you to live healthily to be more healthy and uh and so we did the study was you know the domain was not available so the healthly.com was taken but we found livehealthily.com which we liked because it's a statement of intention so the website is livehealthily.com and we came up with a nice modular logo that represents sort of the fact that everyone is different and in fact the logo is very modular very very kind of customizable um, and we launched it in November 2020 uh, during the pandemic, and it was really well received, and we're very happy with it because we really want to face consumers, you know, want to fill that gap between Google and the decision of going to see the doctor. So we wanted a brand that was very uh, kind of cuddly, consumer-friendly, not like medical scary. Mm. Uh, so, so that's how the name came up. Uh, I'm really, really happy with the name. I think uh, it's doing us a lot of good. Nice. And it's a huge problem to solve, right? You mentioned it at the beginning. One billion searches per day, 7% of all searches on Google are for health-related conditions, and that's consumers or patients or people just searching for the answers to their medical questions that relate to their own health. Now, you've talked about some of 
what you would consider now your competitors, but those incumbents, right? The, the WebMDs of the world that you questioned yeah. their incentives for accuracy, for usability. You talked about the fact that they don't personalize. You've likened them to magazines. And you've taken it, I suppose, upon yourself to go, well, there's a solution here. And the, the problem broadly is that individuals are not getting the right health information. You know, we've had Keith from Medwise on here that's solving that problem actually for clinicians and going, well, clinicians need somewhere yeah. to search yeah. that they get accurate clinical information. But again, to your point, the very expensive problem is in them deciding what the best course of action is often based on their locality yeah. and things like that. So they need up to date, up to date local guidance that is searched even within clinical you know clinical knowledge summaries or nice guidance or that kind of thing so that's a that's a similar like problem to solve but this actually yeah, more on that definitely. consumer element and nhs choices is has been you know there and i know people api into that and pull information from it whatever so this is clearly a, a really big problem to solve my question is actually i know you've taken it upon yourself to solve this problem but actually, whose problem is it to solve? Because it's Google that are getting all these searches, which is interesting. And we know, I know you and I were sat in the same talk, actually, you know, at that, that, that dinner for Google. And there's so interesting yeah. things that they are doing to tackle this. So in part, they see it as a problem for them to solve as well. You see it as a problem to solve, but there's also regulators and there's other people in this equation. So... Is it my problem? Is it your problem? Is it whose pro whose problem is this to solve? And I suppose you know, kudos to you for taking it upon yourself to solve it. I think it's um, the. I would probably say that it's a prob. The problem belongs to. I'm speaking very broadly here and kind of in mm. from a principal point of view. Mm. It's either private companies that want to tackle it, you know, like us or Google or anyone else, but the other one is the the healthcare organizations. You know, like the world, mm. the WHO, uh, you know, National Health Services. Because if you think about it, you know, if every healthcare journey today starts basically randomly, you have a hmm. problem, you can't find anything online, you go where you can go. And then it's, it's like draw of luck. You find a good doctor, great. Find a resolution. You don't find a great doctor. Takes you, you know, like maybe three visits to find a resolution. So every healthcare, you know, the, the doctors call them pathways, you know, the clinical pathways, mm -hmm. today they're not optimized. They all start mm -hmm. randomly at some, you know, at some point, and then they find their own development. Now imagine if you could optimize the first step of every pathway what it would mean to the healthcare system globally as a whole. And it starts with one question, which is, what do I need to do? <laughs> and that is the question. That is the most important and most expensive question in healthcare today, which technology can answer. Now, we're trying mm. to do it because nobody else has tried Google, as we were sitting in that dinner, is not doing it really either because they're doing secondary care and tertiary care. You know, because Google Health, when, what's left of kind of DeepMind, 
is doing some amazing things, but they are diagnostics. You know, spot mm. uh, diabetes or, you know, retinopathy by looking at your eye mm. or, you know, predicting kidney failure in any mm. amazing. But that's not solving this problem. And Google today, if you actually go and run any healthcare search on Google, it's useless. There is nothing there. You know, they might be working on it, but obviously they're not going to tell me, but I haven't seen anything on Google <laughs> that addresses this problem at all. Okay. So I think, you know, we're taking it on because we love the problem and we think we got a very elegant solution using, you know, because we combine, if you look at our website, so the app was the first version. Then we realized that we needed to go closer to Google, hence web. And so our website today, if you go to either Google Healthfully or go to Live Healthfully, it's looking increasingly more like Google because essentially you start with your search. And then what we've done there is we combined AI with search with medically verified content. So instead of searching the World Wide Web, we search a repository of medically verified information so that you don't end up reading an article which is not medically validated, which is dangerous. So... We have written all our content. We license originally some of the NHS Choices content, and we have you know continuously expanding our content. But it's all medically checked. So essentially, it's safe and it's clinically you know good. <laughs> and then we combine AI with search. So if you're asking a question, we're trying to find the answer in our content and say, well, you know, is vitamin D good for me in winter? You know, yes, it is, and this is how you take it. Mm. Or if you type in symptoms, we automatically detect that you may have some symptoms. And so you don't have a question. You just want to find out what to do. And so we use natural language processing to do that. And we automatically direct users either to search or to the, to the AI sort of symptom checking platform. And I haven't seen anyone else taking this on, to be honest, James. Mm-hmm. Because the incumbents you mentioned before they're not motivated because they're essentially cash cows. They're milking kind of the publishing model. Uh, Healthline is the biggest website in the world for health information. They have, according to similar web, Samurai, those guys, they have like something like 300 million monthly uniques, which are those billion people on Google that then click and go to Healthline. But one of the proof points that these sites don't really work is that if you look at the other healthcare website, they all have a lot of traffic. And that our interpretation is that because people don't find what they need on Healthland, then they go and check WebMD. And then they go and check another site. So you have essentially the same users that are going around on different websites because they don't find their answers. And they don't really, you know, to, to give you an idea of how far they are from thinking about personalization on both WebMD and Healthline, you can check for yourself, you cannot create an account. The Mm. website has no ability for you to create an account. You can only sign up to newsletters, but they have no idea whether you're male or female, how old you are. So how can they make their content relevant to you if they have no idea what gender you are, what age you are? Yeah. And, you know, and if they had that in their head, they would have done it already because they've been around for 25 years or so and they have a lot of money. So. I understand. Um, so this this is interesting now because I think in a world of no-code solutions and in a world of 
health tech startups using the word AI willy-nilly, let's say, uh, arguably, (laughs) it can sound quite simple, what you're talking about. It's a search bar. There's NLP. There's an AI algorithm that does blah and just gives you search results that are personalized. Another buzzword that gets thrown out, you make an account with it. You are, we'll personalize it to you. It can sound very simple. Now, you're a theoretical physicist. You've got a PhD in computer science and you've got a couple of decades of building companies behind you. It, it doesn't strike me that this is likely to be simple. And so my question for you is, with in that world of no code, in that world of startups talking about AI, with you being a theoretical physicist, et cetera, what tech is actually behind this? How did you build it? Does it work? And how much money did it cost? Whoa, simple question. Um, so it is very hard. It is very hard. It has been very hard. You know, now it's a bit easier because we've done all the hard work, you know, because we've been working seven years on it. And mm. it costed so far $60 million. Six zero. Six zero. $60 million. Yeah. And so the, the real difficulty, there's probably three things that make it really difficult. And the barrier to hand, entry is really, really high. The first is the, the tech itself, the AI. Because when we did this, there was no precedent. So there was no um, blueprint or, you know, you couldn't read a white paper from Google and say, this is how you do it. Because nobody had done it before. And so you had to kind of have the right approach to creating this thing because, you know, there's Greenfield. And we were lucky that our chief data scientist, the guy that helped me building the first version, had the right approach to this, which was to um, to use, um, I'll go a little bit technical, use a Bayesian probabilistic approach. Mm. So Thomas Bayes was a, um, a English monk from the 18th century that um, came up with this formula, mathematical formula in uh, probability calculus where essentially um, you can uh, you can measure the probability that something is being caused by something else and it's non-linear quite complex and and is actually one of the um, university kind of uh, examples when they teach you the Bayes theorem is diagnosis medical diagnosis because they always take example, okay, you've got a patient with these symptoms, you know, what is the probability that the, that the symptoms are created by this condition? And then if you have some more information, how does probability change? And so that was the key thing. So we were lucky to pick the Bayesian approach as our starting point. Then, but developing the AI, we realized that, and this is one of the biggest complexity, was the scalability of the model, because every patient is different. Because if you take the combination of age, gender, place in the world, time of the year, family history, and presenting symptoms, you basically have a different patient every time, more or less. Mm. So you, you billion people on Google, they can come in and all be, you can have a billion different permutations. And so you need to have a system that is capable of handling that, and it has to be capable of handling also the complexity of the calculation in real time. Because if you're doing it kind of chat-based or web-based, you need to be able to go back fast to the user. And the computational cost is very high. So we had to do quite a lot of work and innovation on that. 
And so there was a technical bit, like the engine was very difficult to build. And I think, personally, I think there's only one other engine as good as ours in the market, which, um, you know, it's some German guys that I respect a lot, the nice guys in Germany. You know, I'm not going to mention that because I don't want to advertise them, but they we basically <laughs> got the two best engines from, a, from an engineering point of view. Yeah. So like if it were cars like BMW and Mercedes, like this is the two best engines that have been built over the last five, seven years. It's basically these two hours and these German guys. The average complexity, the second complexity is the data. Because obviously the engine is the engine, but the engine is doesn't have any data in it. It's all the logic, you know, how you deal with every situation. But the data, the underlying data model could be small, large, mm. deep, not deep, you know. The data was really difficult because and this is where also we, we got lucky, I think, in the choice of the data model. Because if you're trying to understand the situation of a user from a healthcare perspective, a lot of people intuitively think that the best way to do it would be to use patient data. So imagine you collected all the patient data from the NHS, from all GP clinics, and you could use that. We can say, oh, you know, I've got a user, this age, this gender with the symptoms from the data that we got, the real data you know, the probability they have pneumonia versus, you know, some of the chest infections, X, Y, Z. The reality is that that doesn't work at all because the data, the real life data has two problems. One is that it's uh, heterogeneous. It's in different systems coded in different ways. But the bigger problem is that it's plagued with the errors of the doctors that gave the wrong diagnosis because you don't know if the doctor was right. Absolutely. <laughs> and the doctors are not always right. And so if you used real data, you would inherit the mistakes made by the doctors who made the mistakes, some of them or you know, all of them. Mm. And you don't have clean data. It's a bit like mm. if you were tagging a machine learning system where you to recognize cats and dogs, if 30% of the cats was labeled as dogs, it would never work, basically. Yep. Because 30% of the times we say that a cat is a dog, right? This is the same. So you cannot use machine learning for this type of uh, problem. You have to use a clean model. And the only clean model is the same model that is taught to doctors, which is the theoretical model, is the kind of a priori, which is, you know, if you go to uni as a doctor, they teach you that if you have pneumonia, you will have these symptoms, this is what you have to do, and it's all the theory of it, right, mm -hmm. which is based on clinical evidence. And that's what we did. So essentially, we created a data model where our medical team, working with the AI team, defined the data modeling for each condition. So patient with COVID, 80% of patients with COVID will have headache. But where is the 80%? This is difficult. Where do you get the 80%? Well, you need to find a paper on Lancet, on Nature, mm. on BMJ, that says, oh, we've seen the 80% of patients with COVID have headache. So we had to manually extract all the data points that could then be used by the AI engine to assess the situation of the user. A good analogy is mapping, right? I like the mapping analogy because it's actually intellectually very similar. You need the map, you need all the data points, but then you need a GPS. So the AI is the GPS. And the underlying model is the map. But the mapping we had to do manually. Wow. Because every point had to be checked, tri triple checked by medical people, have a reference saying this data point was taken from this article or published on BMJ in 2021 on you know, long COVID or whatever it was. 
And so it's a painstakingly slow job, but it's the only way to do it because mm. you have to have the best map. <laughs> mm. If your map is wrong, obviously you end up, you know, getting the wrong road or kind of getting off road. So that's uh, why the second reason why it's very difficult. So the tech, uh, the GPS, the map, the data model. The third is regulatory. It's going to be safety, clinical safety, um, because that puts like a break on what you're doing. You have to do it slower, make sure that you're not breaking the regulation, that you're following the guidelines. The regulators, they're still kind of finding their feet around this thing because the problem for the regulators is that a system like this, the single biggest problem for them is that you don't have the patient-doctor relationship. Because all the clinical stuff is based on the patient-doctor relationship. That's how it's all defined. Uh, You don't have the doctor anymore. Okay, so who's responsible? Where do you stop? Where do you draw lines? So we were the first to get the medical device certification, class one, with MHRA back in 2017. We just found out that we don't need to go to class two, that kind of kind of regulation. We need to get the UK now one because it's not part of Europe anymore. So <laughs> thank you very much. So we need to do all the application yeah. to get the equivalent of the CMR to the UK. But it's complicated because you need to make sure that, you know, as a startup guy, you know, the mantra move fast and break things, you can't in health tech yeah. because you can you move fast, you kill people or you hurt people. So you cannot do that. And and I was very fortunate because my background also is not medical at all. And in 2017, I met uh, Dr. Mark Davis, who's the chief health officer at IBM. Hmm. And he fell in love with our, our idea. And it was fun, actually, because we were also in charge of Watson, IBM Watson. And he always told me that he thought our system was a lot more interesting and useful than, than Watson, um, which is why probably this IBM sold Watson recently. Um, but anyway, Mark taught me this idea of finding the right balance between giving value to users and clinical safety sort of, and risk. Mm. And so he created a clinical, advice, clinical advisory board that works very closely with, uh, with us, where we take anything that we're not sure about, we get their input, and they're all kind of very expert clinicians. And he also introduced me to Professor Maureen Baker, who's the former chair of our College of GP oh, yeah. and the doctor that defined all the safety protocols for IT in the NHS 15 years ago for which she got a CBE from the Queen. And Maureen is our chief medical officer. So Mm. that's just to say that we take safety really, really seriously. And we have built a system that, and you ask me, you know, the end of your question, why does it work? Yes, it works. Is it perfect? No. Why is it not perfect? Because the data, it's too, you know, the data model, the underlying model, it's going to take you a lifetime to build the complete Absolutely. one. So you will only have some gaps, some imprecisions. But you can make it better and better because the mm. better the data, the more data you have, and the better you fine-tune the logic in the kind of your GPS, in the engine, the better you become. So mm. but the key thing for us has always been safety. So we put safety first. So a year and a half ago, we asked Imperial College to do an independent validation test on our platform particularly on safety. And they came back saying basically that when we tell people what to do, the advice 97.8% of the times is safe, which is very good, which is really, really high. 
you could argue that sometimes maybe we over triage. Sometimes we say people, you should go and see a doctor. Maybe they could have just stayed home. But we don't do the other way around. We don't say, oh, fine, you can Precisely. go to bed and then you die in your sleep. So, so that's the key number one thing for us. In terms of accuracy, we are around 72, 73% in terms of understanding what is the potential condition underneath. Mm-hmm. But you know what? It doesn't really completely matter because it matters particularly for self-care because mm-hmm. self-care yes. is the holy grail that we're trying to unlock because if I can tell you not to go to the doctor, then you need to know what to do with your self-care. So if I say you got conjunctivitis and you know, and this mm-hmm. is what you need to do, then fine. I need to make sure I get that right. But if I say you need to see the doctor, the fact that you have condition A or B, it, it doesn't really matter because it's going to be the yeah. doctor that has to deal with it anyway. So this idea of trying to measure the accuracy of symptom checker on the diagnosis, I think is misleading because what you want is an, is an engine that tells people in the most accurate and safe way what to do, right? I always use a stupid example. If you have vomiting blood, you just have to go to the hospital. End of story. It doesn't matter why. Mm-hmm. So if your AI says that you're vomiting blood, for the wrong reason, it doesn't matter as long as it tells you need to go to the hospital. So anyway, so that's kind of long story, but it's really difficult. Really, really difficult. Yeah. It seems to me, Matteo, that there's there's a heck of a lot of credibility that sits behind this f- consumer front door, essentially. So going to Healthily and, and looking at how user-friendly it is and it's for the general public to go on and ask their health questions and get a realistic plan of what to do. It has to look good. It has to feel good. It has to be engaging in all those different ways and for all those different reasons. But $60 million is not an insignificant amount of money to spend building an AI engine. And to your points about everything that has gone into that, it really does feel credible. And I think my question originally was putting it in the context of all all the use of the word AI at the moment and the fact we are in a world of no code and there's a lot of, I'll just build a startup out the box and take this from there and that from there and mm-hmm. I can you know put it together very quickly. Actually, what we have in Healthly is something that's been arguably far longer than in the making than even the company was incorporated, right? There's a whole lifetime of your your personal learning that's got into this, not least the 60 million quid you've actually spent building this. And I think the back end of that must look extremely daunting <laughs> to somebody. However, I imagine when you were going out to raise that 60 million, a quick view of the back end was probably enough for them to say, okay, Okay, our, t- our technical due diligence is going to yeah. uh, be quite a while. And actually, that was probably quite encouraging for those people to be like, mm, there's actual AI behind this. And I think I think that's the thing yeah. here. So my final question for you, because I know I'm conscious of time here. My final question for you is, who's this for, realistically? Is this for people in the UK that are wondering what to do about a certain symptom or a certain condition or a certain thing that they've got going on and they, they're not sure whether they go to A&E or the GP? Is it for that? Is it for people in Europe, the US, for different reasons? Who is it for and what should they be doing with Healthily? So my dream is to help the billion people on Google to, we use the line, find their health. Mm. 
which I like as a line because if you're on a search engine, it means you're searching for something. So we want to help you find it and you're basically to help you find your help. So my dream is to help a billion people find their health through technology because it's it's impossible to do it with healthcare professionals. You know, there's a scarcity, growing scarcity of healthcare professionals. So it's, you cannot solve the demand supply problem with uh, people. Yeah, you need tech to come to the rescue. We have focus on English first, obviously, clearly, you know, for, for many, many reasons. We have also invested on the content side, not on the AI, in Hindi and Spanish, because we, we want to see how this platform can be helpful in emerging markets or markets a bit more you know different from Europe like India. US obviously is a very interesting uh, market for us because they have some serious healthcare costs and problem. We have the, the system is free. It's basically is, you understand why I say Google for health now after all this conversation is trying mm-hmm. to be Google for health. We also license the technology so, for example, we're working with Walmart at the moment in the U.S. Uh, we have a number of our clients that look at using the technology to manage their demand, you know, health insurers, telemedicine, mm. and so on. You say $60 million, you know, is not a lot. You know, my German friends I mentioned before, mm, I think they raised over $200 million. So. <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually we did a lot with not a lot, you know, because this is an expensive game. Mm. So my mm. my dream is to, you know, I think we cannot do this alone. I would like some mm. of the big guys to come and knock on my door and say, come on, Matteo, let's do it together. Let's change the world. Let's help everyone in the world find really high quality, safe, clinically verified information for free. And I think it's a fantastic, uh, a fantastic dream, a fantastic goal because, you know, it can be done. We've proven it can be done. So, you know, you said before, whose problem is this? I think this is everyone's problem. So I put yeah. a post on LinkedIn yeah. a week ago saying, come. I said, guys, help us. It's free. It's the best healthcare resources in the world. Just let's all work together because it can be done. And, you know, we can help every single human being with a phone to find out what mm. to do and what they need to know to, to start, you know, their health journey and be on, you know, more in control of a healthier life, basically. I love it. Matteo, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Obviously, what you're doing solves an enormous problem for literally a billion searches per day that happen. 7% of searches are for health conditions, and this is a much better place to do it from the sounds of things with a lot of credible technology and build behind it. Um, You've got your regulation on point, you know exactly who the MIHRA are and what class you need to be doing, and you're thankful you're not needing to be class two, et cetera. All of that shows even more credibility behind what you're doing. And I think it's uh, I think it's a phenomenal effort. Um, if you want to learn more about Healthily, you can head to livehealthily.com. Is that right? Or just Google Healthily. We're the number one link on Google if you search the word Healthily. So. Perfect. So Google Healthily, that'll take you there. And Matteo, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so? I assume LinkedIn. LinkedIn or email. My email is matteo at livehealthily.com or LinkedIn. And it's been a pleasure being on the podcast, James. Great conversation. And uh, I look forward to helping a billion people together, maybe. (laughs) Absolutely. There's a few that listen to this podcast, mate. Let's hope they get in touch. (laughs) Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. 
Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.